All right, this is Lawyer Talk off the record on the air. It is Wednesday. That means it is a Blitz Wednesday. We're going to interface with the Blitz. It is September 29, 2021. Imagine that. We've been doing this uh, this pandemic thing now for, I guess, well over a year and maybe longer. So, But, you know, good things uh, or bad things lead to good things because now we've got the studio equipped to interface with the Blitz as we need to. Uh, we've got, uh, we're going to call Norm, who... Man, I don't know what happened there, but Norm is now in the hospital recovering from an infection, so uh, we're going to pipe him in uh, remotely as well. So the technology has caught up to the shutdowns, and the show must go on, and it will. And we're going to, as we catch up with Norm after the Blitz, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of cover some broader topics, uh, rehash the questions we got, and uh, I'm sure it will be entertaining. And it looks like uh, it's going to start about right now. The Blitz is tuning in, so here we go. All right, Steve Palmer on the line with us right now. How are you, sir? Hey, doing great. How are you guys doing over there? Hey, we're doing awesome, man. 821-9970, 800-821-9970. Legal questions, if you have them, just send them on over to us. So we were talking about the, the story with John Jones. Uh, this guy, after the Hall of Fame the other night, gets arrested, and he goes down on domestic battery and a felony assault charge on a police officer's car he headbutted a car have you ever encountered anything like that steve an assault on a police officer's car no i mean i'm not sure what that charge is ordinarily that'd be like criminal damaging and i bet you there might be an enhancement uh if it's uh law enforcement property or something like that so that wouldn't surprise me yeah and i, I was kind of surprised he all the talk that he had to the officers too he, he told like like seven officers at one time he goes hey i bet i can i jokingly told them i bet i could take all you guys on right now that's awesome, and I didn't. I didn't see any of this footage. But like, what was their response? We're like, all right, we'll, we'll just uh, we'll line no, it up that, and get so, it done. No, that's interesting that you said that. So they said, you know, if you keep antagonizing us, and and they called it resisting arrest. They said, if you keep resisting arrest, we will tase you. And at that point, he apologized and backed out. Right, <laughs> started that, walking it back a little bit. Yeah, sorry, I can't beat your taser. Well, it goes to show you because, I mean, in so many other instances, we've seen the opposite of that. And then the police are are called brutal and look at how awful this is. And I mean, at the same time, somebody's sitting there going, hey, I bet I can take all seven of you on. You kind of start to think, even if they're not the world champion, you kind of start to think like, well, what is this guy on? Like, you know, what am I dealing with here? Yeah. And I guess I would say this, just generally speaking, and this is not to say that there aren't instances where the police overreact and, uh, and engage in conduct they shouldn't uh, for whatever reason. But if you think about how many interactions the police have day in and day out, like statistically across the country, the number of law enforcement officers encountering individuals of all types, um, most of those, if not like 99.99999% of those uh, don't result in any sort of uh, violence or physical force beyond just what is necessary to effectuate the arrest. And, you know, so I, I've had plenty of cases, um, again, of all races, all genders, et cetera, where the person getting arrested uh, is basically acting like a, like a jackass and, and really could you could see the police overreacting to that and doing something, and they don't. Now, I'm not again. That's not to say that sometimes the police don't go too far. In fact, I had a college kid on campus just this weekend who I think the police went a little too far. But uh, most of the time, uh, the police are pretty good about dealing with that stuff. Uh, and I think in this day and age, they have to be. And you also have to understand, most of the time, uh, there's some sort of audio video going on. So that has been, uh, I think, a really good advancement to uh, keep everybody in check. 
Oh, I didn't even think about the body cam aspect of it. Can you imagine how Ooh, embarrassing that yeah. is for John Jones when that comes out? Because they say he will went, it come out. I hope we see it. I know they say he Got went it. from irate to crying to irate back to crying oh, several geez. times. Like, I mean, can you imagine like the guy that's going to fight him the next time starts playing that over and over? Don't yeah. let the Diaz brothers see it or like I mean, DC. I would, I would right. just play that on every press conference. Oh, what's my response to that question? This. <laughs> this is my response. So we have a text uh, for Steve. Uh, yeah. I uh, had to put my grandmother in a nursing home. No one told me she was going in for hospice. I signed all the paperwork in a rush because she was in my car in pain. Went to see her a couple times, and she seemed fine. Well, she died a couple weeks later, and they put a lien on my house, which my ex-wife owns. My family members gave me money from Grandma's estate to pay it off. The ex-wife took care of bank accounts and money, and it never got paid. Now, the ex wants to refinance, but can't because of the lien. Am I still responsible for payment to, for paying off the lien on a house I no longer own? Well, I don't know. The answer is, uh, there's a lot. I, I don't even know what the answer is. There's a lot I would need to know. I don't know uh, if, if he gave or somebody gave the uh, facility permission to put a lien on the house. Uh, I don't know how they ended up doing that, whether it was through probate, through the estate, or some other way. Um, if this individual didn't have any ownership interest in the house, well, then certainly, uh, and, and the person who did own the house didn't have any um, obligation to, um, to underwrite the debt then I don't think the lien would be good in the first place. So that would be the first uh, question. Now, that doesn't mean, however, that if money is owed to the facility that this individual wouldn't be responsible. So the lien is merely a means of collecting what is owed on a contract. Um, so getting rid of the lien might alleviate the problem on the house, but if there is still a debt or an alleged debt based on the contractual relationship with the facility, you might have to pay that. Now, part of the, I think early on in the question, it indicated that he did pay it all off with... Uh, with some money from the estate and, and some other contributors. So uh, it sounds like it all needs to be sorted out, and it sounds like it's going to be more than just a, a quick text response. So uh, give us a shout, 614-224-6142. Probably send that over to Jay Michael or Dave Goldstein or somebody to help you analyze it. All right, this comes from Goose, and it actually uh, comes from Kelly and Randy as well. Can Brittany be out of the conservatorship without a mental evaluation? Uh, you know what? I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the California law is on that. Uh, generally speaking, a conservatorship is premised upon some sort of need. And I would guess that under California law, in order to get rid of the conservatorship, you would have to show that there isn't that need. Now, who has to show it, what the standards of proof would be, and uh, whether it's Brittany's obligation or somebody else's obligation to disprove it, uh, that I don't know. That would be a California probate lawyer question. But uh, yeah, I would think that there's going to have to be some showing that the conservatorship is no longer necessary in order to get rid of it altogether. It's weird because she was able to prove that she did uh, two different tours, a residency. She was booked on How I Met Your Mother, and she was a judge on uh, The X Factor. But she could not be in charge of her own decisions. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, you could, when you put it like that, it sounds ridiculous, but then you could add some other facts and circumstances that would say, look, my manager is the, or the manager is the one that booked all these things. The manager, there were people that drove her to all these places. Uh, it, she's able to perform her basic entertainment function, but beyond that, she's not, uh, and I, I'm not saying this is true, but the oh, allegation well, they listed her as dementia and she's able to memorize her lines and give them. And you know what I mean? That's what I mean. That, that was how they got the conservatorship in the first part. They said she has dementia. And, well, and I, how that's defined, who knows, but if she's able to do all those things and still not, uh, functioning enough, 
uh, or at a capacity to take care of her own financial affairs or is reckless about that. You could see how both things could be true if you dug into the uh, the actual facts and details. You could also see how it might be sort of farcical to say that she's incapable of handling her own affairs. At the same time, she can do all these other things. I would want to know how she is accomplishing these other things and whether she's getting propped up, how much so help she's getting. So she agrees on a person helping her with her money, a conservatorship of that. She does not agree with a personal one, being able to take her car out and drive down the street to the convenience store. Yeah, that's like a financial advisor. Yeah, right? that, yeah. Like she's like, I don't, I don't need a ruler. I just need like a financial she, advisor. She's maybe. not allowed to like even leave her house to go on a golf cart until someone okays and it could be 20 minutes until they okay it yeah she was forced to, to use an iud like it's just like insane things that people shouldn't be forced to do she was taken off her adderall medication the minute she said she refused to stop working in vegas and they put her on lithium the next day yeah see there's this a lot going on here that we probably don't know all the all the facts and circumstances and i'm pretty sure most of that has been True. sealed up on the uh on the psych evals and the health oh, evaluations. Really? yeah i don't think that's become public um, but it, well, is there cases like where that ever becomes public? That seems like really, really personal. Uh, probably. I'm sure it has happened, but I'm sure it is also true that if, if you were involved in that type of, uh, litigation, you would not want it to come out and you would ask right. the court for orders like that. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. All right. We do have another question here via text. Uh, yeah. Michael has an IRS question. He and his wife are married filing jointly, said we owed $500. We made a payment of $200 last month. Then we got an email stating, thank you for your payment. Well, then yesterday they got home and they had a letter stating that we owe the entire amount and that it must be paid by September 23rd. And he doesn't know what to do. Yeah, you know who you call a good tax accountant for that. I, 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 my guess, and this is a guess, this is not legal advice. That's the disclaimer. My guess is the letter that they received was generated after the payment they made, and it sounds like uh, there's some other facts that would back that up. Like it was dated, uh, it was, or the the payment they were requesting was dated bef before the date they received the letter and before the date they made the payment. So I, I think there's, it wouldn't surprise me if the payment crossed paths with the notification that they have to pay the full amount. I would place a call to an accountant and or just go, call directly to the IRS. Maybe there's an 800 number on there somewhere and try to figure it out. Um, but either way, I wouldn't uh, screw around with it too much because it'll start, a, it'll start accruing penalties and interest and all sorts of nasty stuff. You hate to pay the IRS more than you want to or more than you have to. Yeah, that's for sure. All right. Each and every week, Steve is giving us solid legal advice. And you guys, if you need Steve off the air, uh, of course, they can reach out to you at uh, one simple number, right, Steve? Yeah. 614-224-6142. Ohio State football is in full swing. I had a couple calls over the weekend. So everybody be careful. But if you do run into some trouble, you should put my number in your phone right now and then give us a shout. We'll be happy to take care of you. All right, so that was uh, the Blitz. Uh, we did, uh, the, obviously, the same old thing here. Wednesdays, every Wednesday, we were taking calls with Randy and Loper over at 99.7. A uh, couple things here at Lawyer Talk. We got Norm on the phone uh, because Norm, I mean, what is going on here at 5.11? We got Jared in the hospital recovering from a very tragic and severe motorcycle accident. And then I get a text last week that uh, Norm, we were supposed to meet on Saturday, and he's like, well, I'm going to the hospital and uh, I can't be there. And I'm just like, it, it's the curse of the 5.11, maybe. I maybe, don't know. Uh, let's not say that. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to talk. No, 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 no. So, Norm, we got you yeah, piped in by phone. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, to be participating and 
Uh, if I can shake off this uh, staph infection here in the next couple of days, I should be out of this place and uh, under a treatment plan. So I think it'll be okay. Yeah, it's, um, I tell you, it's got to be frustrating. You've been in there now, what? It's probably like more like a kill them by boredom, I would think. Yeah, incredibly so. So for folks that aren't aware of how this works, they do blood cultures and tissue cultures. And those cultures take uh, sometimes up to three days per sampling uh, to come back and for them to identify the specific staph. There are several different kinds of staph and they tailor the antibiotic treatment to the specific staph. And that's my layman's explanation. So they're they're undergoing that process with me now of pinpointing precisely which bug I have and then uh, using the right fly swatter to kill it. Gotcha. <laughs> well, um, while you're uh, while you're recovering there in the hospital, the show must go on. You know, that's sort of the uh, that's the that's the adage. So we're gonna we're gonna make it go on. Um, on the Blitz today, uh, you know, I know Randy R- Loper. They're both uh, Randy Loper into the UFC and the fighting, and they had the John Jones question. Apparently, he was arrested on domestic violence, and uh, maybe got into it a bit with the police over the weekend or recently. And uh, it was interesting because uh, I guess on the on the video or on the uh, during the arrest, uh, he was telling seven or eight cops or asking them maybe uh, whether they thought he could take them all at once. And by take them, I presume he meant like <laughs> like physically, physically win. Now you know you can imagine Norm how they react. Actually, they reacted very well. And I guess all they said was, "Well, you know, if you do that, we'll just tase you, and then you lose." <laughs> So it's uh, that's a pretty simple equation. So, uh, but you know, it did it, it it triggered a couple thoughts that I had, and that is this, and this is what I told the Blitz, Norma. You, we didn't get you on until after that, but um, you know, there's so many interactions between citizens and police day in and day out, whether they be traffic stops, whether they're uh, more serious than that, uh, and and most of those, in fact, almost all of those uh, are rather routine, even on serious cases. There's not uh, it's not all. It's less often the case that there's some sort of police brutality or violence involved, whether it's justified or not. Most of the time, it is peaceful. And I think uh, it just dawned on me as I was listening to that question. You know, it's probably appropriate to point out. It's also appropriate to point out that when the police go, when they do go too far, when they do put the arm on somebody a little more than they should, we got to call that out too. But uh, it's like anything. You know, they don't. Nobody notes the good things that are done. Only the bad. And uh, that is, um, I think it's worthwhile to at least comment on that, is that there was a situation here that could have been really ugly, and it didn't turn out ugly, uh, and that's a good thing. And and you could say, I suppose, well, they're just doing their job, and that's what they're supposed to do. And you're like, well, yeah, that is. They're doing their job. It's what they're supposed to do. Right. Um, So Yeah, I mean, yeah, airplane lands safely at airport. Uh, You know, dog does not bite boy, you know. Those kinds, you know, every day the police do a good job uh, 99% of the time. And uh, it's only in those rare cases. Um, I mean, you and I have both known policemen that have never even pulled their gun in a 30-year history of uh, service to the community. So um, it's it's not a common thing for cops to engage an individual cop 
they have to engage in, in violence. And when they do, sometimes for them it is very stressful, and uh, they have to make these decisions of, of how to resolve it in a split second, and they're not perfect. Um, and uh, I think the standard to which we hold uh, cops and, and, frankly, victims of crime uh, are also held to a ridiculously high standard, in my opinion. You know, which yeah. leads to another discussion. Well, but, in, in the over yeah, your scenario reminded me more of this guy having a Billy Jack fantasy or something. Billy Jack. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, man. He wants, or walking tall. He wants to take on a gang of eight guys at once. I mean, geez. Yeah, so you just mentioned Billy Jack. So, like, we're going back to, like, the 70s. Old Billy Jack, who I'm going to take the right side of my foot, I'm going to kick the left side of your face, and you're not a damn thing you're going to do about it. There's some line like that. It is, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, Yeah, uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah, the guy's definitely on some kind of a trip. I wouldn't be surprised. uh, I think you mentioned uh, it was a stop, possibly involving uh, drinking, but... Yeah, he, he could have been on something else. Now, I think it was a domestic violence call, and I, I didn't know the whole story. I was trying to read it really quickly as we were talking, but I think it was a domestic violence call, and he was getting arrested in that context, and he probably was intoxicated, oh. it sounds like. Uh, he was oh. he, he was sort of happy yeah. and sad and crying and laughing. That This this sort of Indeed. the, the, the wow. common uh, sense things you see when somebody's under the influence of alcohol. But What a mess. Yeah, it's a mess. Um, but it, it sort of led me to that thought that most of the time the police interaction is good. When it's not good, we call it out, and I guess we should. Um, the other, the other thing, that, yeah, yeah. And the other thing that came up, Norm, is this: is that there is sort of a natural uh, police of the police. You know, it's the video and audio cameras that most of these cruises and many, many body cams now uh, they have that equipment that is always rolling. So, and police know that. I mean, I, I think it's it's one of the best things that that technology has added. Uh, to the system is the the notion that we can document everything that's going on. That you know, yeah. if, if you're in the back of a cruiser and the police are mistreating you, well, guess what? It's on tape. If you're in the back of the cruiser and you're mistreating the police, well, guess what? It's on tape. Um, we have uh, and, and man, some of these body cameras. I got to tell you, I've had body cameras here, and and it, the CPD I don't, I don't think has these ones, but or the ones I'm talking about. But there's some that you can even see. Uh, when they're doing the HGN test or the eye test for a DUI stop, you can see the eyes. You know, it's, they're they're crystal clear. They're high def. Wow. So it's the great that's, equalizer. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, we are a monitored society, uh, and it's it's just uh, spiraling more and more to that. Every intersection, uh, every means of public transportation, um, you know, all the school buses, all the CODA buses elevators i mean it yeah i mean it's it's just the way it's all going well wasn't there um, one time sensors in, be, in high school restaurants sure it'll be a sport at some point for people to uh try to see if they can go through a city without once being on camera or or shielding their identity and uh you know probably uh be a be something people do as a as a as a a sport really um, and, and see if they can uh, sneak through town without ever being on a camera because it's going to be virtually impossible. 
Yeah, and uh, Brett, I think there was something Brett was mentioning here that there there was a time that we had cameras or something in the bathrooms in high schools. Vapor sensors. Oh, the vapor sensors. Okay, that's what it was. Is that what that was? Basically, a cousin of the camera. Yeah. If you think about it, you know, so it's something yeah. going on in that restroom that is being monitored. But you know, uh, some countries are already well down that path, like the United Kingdom. Uh, they have these speed detection machines called GATSOs, and um, uh, I forget what that acronym means. Or oh, that's the name of the manufacturer, GATSO. Wow. And uh, yeah, what it is? It's a it's a speed detector with a camera, and you know it, it's not always clear who's driving. And frankly, their system of government, it doesn't matter. Uh, I guess you're you know. The, the, the owner of the car gets the, the the citation in the mail, and you're expected to pay a, a fine if your kid, you know, was doing 150 uh, kph, you know, out there on the uh, M24 around London. Um, you're 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 going to pay that ticket, regardless of whether or not they can identify who who the driver was. So they're ticketing cars instead of drivers. Well, you make a good point. We take for granted sometimes in our country the constitutional rights that we do have. You know, they have to actually prove a case beyond reasonable doubt. And the first element in almost any criminal offense is going to be identity. They have to prove that you did it or whoever is accused did it. And, uh, yeah. and if they can't make that jump, if they can't connect those dots, there is no case. And uh, I get, and then, and then they can't they can't force you to actually admit that you did it. And I, I think we sometimes take that for granted. They can't ask us, hey, are you guilty? Why don't you climb up on a witness right. stand and either lie or tell us you're guilty either way. Let's just get this over with. And we have the right to remain silent. So there's we have a lot of protections like that. And what you just told me about the the cameras and the speeding detection made me, uh, it, it triggered my, another topic I wanted to discuss here was what's going on in Australia with the contact tracing on uh, COVID and everybody's required to get apps and uh, they're there. I mean, it's almost become a police state uh, with yeah. monitoring of private citizens. And, and then I got to thinking, well, I'm all good with monitoring what the police do because they're getting paid by the government. They're getting paid by the public. They're getting paid by our tax dollars. So I'd like to know what they're doing, but I don't want it the other way. I don't want to be monitored. I don't want, I don't download the health apps. I don't download any location. I hate all that stuff because I don't want anybody, I don't, I don't need the government knowing what I'm doing. And it's not even that I'm doing anything wrong. It's more just like, man, I'm just, I'm bred on privacy and, and having the government out of my business. But, um, it's, it's quickly, I think that's a sinking ship. It is. Yeah. I have a, uh, a relative in Australia. Um, my niece married, uh, an Australian gentleman and, um, they've now had two children and their American grandparents have not even met the, the two children. I mean, it's, we're going on year two and they haven't even been able to go to Australia and, and visit, you know, their new grandchildren and nor is it, is she able to come here to America because, uh, you can't get back in Australia. I mean, if you, you could leave an Australian can leave Australia, but getting back into Australia is incredibly difficult. Um, so I know race car drivers from Australia, for example, that were going to go to Le Mans that canceled their plans because they're concerned that they'll never be able to get back in their own country until all of these uh, restrictions are lifted. 
Wow. So, you know, they'll just be a vagrant in Europe for, I don't know, a year or whatever until they list all this. So, well, you know, same way with my niece. And, and I think that was true. It's true in Great Britain, too. Um, you know, the beloved, dear, awesome heart and soul of the Rolling Stones, Charlie Watts, passed away a few weeks ago. Or was that about a month ago now, mm. probably? And I know that yeah. uh, the band, Keith and Mick, and uh, they, they couldn't. Like, like I read the headlines, like uh, Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, not attending funeral. And I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like <laughs> something about that sounded fishy. Right. So I read it. And it's like if they leave because they're getting ready to start their American tour. And if they, they, they're they worried that if they go back, they either can't get in or they can't get back out uh, to uh, to come meet their obligation on the tour. So it just is. Uh, yeah. It's crazy. You know, and I've talked about this before. It's like, it bef- like we're living We've never, I remember as a, as a, I think I was 13 or 14 years old, I was fortunate enough to visit um, Germany. And that was still when they had East and West Germany separated by a wall. And there were armed uh, Soviet Union soldiers on top of that wall um, guarding it. And it wasn't yeah. just that you couldn't get in, but you also couldn't get out. I mean, it was like a prison. And, uh, you know, Absolutely. It, it was a very, very, unsettling feeling. I mean, I, I remember just, it's like they had these barbed wire fences and there was like this, this shooting zone in between the, the wall and the, I mean, really crazy. And then I remember a movie, I forget what it was called, but I think Disney made it of all things where uh, the family was trying to escape and they created a hot air balloon and they, they ballooned out. And I think it was based on some true story, but uh, it, it's like, we've, we've never really experienced until maybe now the, the feeling of being confined in your own, in a, in your own country. Like we've always, we've always had freedom. And I think because of that, we have so often taken it for granted that we have the freedom, and then you don't appreciate when it's when it's being taken away from you. It's like you you, you like it, it's never been this way in the history of the planet that a country is so free to do whatever they want to do, come and go. Look, you don't like it here, leave. And uh, I'm not yeah. s- and I'm not saying that because I want people to leave. I'm saying that because they can if they want, and there are places that you cannot leave if you want. You're stuck there, right? And and I think right. it's quickly becoming that way again under the auspice of uh, COVID nineteen protection. Hmm. I'm kind of surprised that you don't Oddly hear enough, oh. uh, the you... the countries which seem more dedicated to protecting their own citizens, um, looking out for their uh, welfare, uh, making sure that they have good borders, rejecting this uh, this worldwide movement to have a borderless world where, you know, people just migrate wherever they want. Of course, that would be a calamity for Western Europe, which experimented pretty heavily with that. And, uh, of course, for us, because rather than uh, taking uh, wealth or taking capital and teaching other countries how to exploit their populations and their talents and their natural resources if people just push the easy button and migrate to the united states in an unfettered way um you know there will be swamped so we understand that but what what i like in terms of personal freedoms which which is what you're addressing are these former soviet satellite states Places like uh, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Poland, um, those 
you know, you mentioned Eastern Germany, or East Germany, now reunited with West Germany. Um, th- those people, if you visit those people, people in, in the Ukraine, and you talk to them about the new freedoms that they have today, since the wall fell, they, you know, they are incredibly, I mean, they sound like the original founding father patriots. Uh, they, they are people who will, um, you know, water the tree of freedom with their own blood. They're not going to ever go back without a fight. They, they, they lived under that kind of domination under the big brother system and uh, being controlled being told what careers they could, you know, they've been assigned to a particular career from childhood uh, and uh, where they're going to live and getting the exact same diet as the family next door. And, you know, everything is the same. Everything's bland. Everything is the minimal necessary to survive. There's no way to make yourself better except by becoming a criminal and participating in the black market. So, you talk to these people in Eastern Europe, man, you know, that's where our, our first lady Trump came from. Uh, you know, Melania, people like that. Hey, man, they ain't going back. And they understand what freedom really means more than I think most contemporary Americans do because yeah. they lived it. Um, it, it, it. Go back to that Rolling Stones example. And for some reason, what came to my mind is a non-compete clause that, okay, so the government is saying that you can't go tour. And it's like economic distress that, okay, wait a minute, I have to stay here. In other words, a non-compete, you, if you work for us, you can't go anywhere. You know what I mean? And, and it, it leads toward that, well, wait a minute, if I leave, I can't come back. So therefore, if I can't come back into the country, I can't tour in my homeland. Yeah, I, yeah I, I, I'm surprised that this economic, dist- I don't know if that's the right term, but economic distress has not come up as I'm suing the government. I can't do my job under these circumstances. Well, I have a ship full of stuff in containers that I can't sell that's going to go bad because of this situation. Yeah, and we have, here's the problem is it's like, well, first of all, in, the, in uh, Britain, they don't have, it's a different governmental structure than ours. And I think what they're saying is, look, you can come back, but you may not get in because of testing or if you... It's going to be a few weeks. It's going to be tough or, or you may yeah. not get back out or whatever it is. Yeah. I don't think they wanted to take the chance. And the, the issue you're bringing up is an interesting one. So if you have, like, they have contractual obligations to go perform. And um, that too, yeah. And they also, now they, they can be given the choice. You can come back here, but you can't get back out. Um, or you can just stay out and, and do your performance and we'll talk later. And uh, it, it puts that, it, this is, we're not used to this sort of heavy-handed, full-force government interference with our ability to earn our livings. Right. Um, I'm just not used to it. I, and it really has thrown me for a yeah. loop in, in, my, in my career, in my job, in well, my day-to-day effect, activities. Well, it affected you as well, too, that, you know, as we were talking off-air, if no one's going out doing things, they can't make mistakes and possibly get in trouble and yep. have to call you. Yep. It, it severely impacted my business we had like this government grant or government it basically shut down private entertainment it shut down the court system or at least choked it to a uh, a, a small uh, minimal stream of business and uh that sort of twin tandem of 
of uh, government action really, really uh, hit me hard as far as my ability to do my job. I couldn't resolve the cases that I had that I was working on already. And there were not many new cases happening because people weren't going out and they weren't getting in trouble. Now, you could say that's a good thing, but uh, I, I think it's a short-sighted, one-dimensional approach. And this is uh, maybe a good way to shift gears and talk about the other side of that. Because, yes, I've always said, like, if we're talking about the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany or any authoritarian regime or, uh, you know, these uh, China even, it's easy to prevent crime. Like, you can, you can stop crime. Um, you put jackboots on the sidewalks, and if you jaywalk, you shoot somebody, you're going to stop it really fast. You can eliminate crime almost down to zero, but there's a cost. And uh, the same is true with eliminating people's uh, freedom to go out and be in the entertainment industry or, or, or uh, cohort together or commune or do whatever people do. I mean, we're humans. We need to be out. We need to interact with others. And, you know, you could say we can, we, can do the, we can pretty much stop the virus if everybody stays home and doesn't go out. But then there's other consequences to that. Like people lose all their ability to pay their bills. They lose their mental health. They lose um, uh, their parents and loved ones without seeing them the last time. And that causes a, a, like ripple effects everywhere. And these are sort of well, unmeasurable Steve, in the short term. Yeah. Well, Steve, Steve there's, uh, there's uh, epidemiologists who believe that the orders for us to all stay home for such an extended period uh, actually interfered with the natural progression of, um, of natural immunity. Yeah. That, you know, that, you know, when, when we all self-isolate and, and the germ doesn't get spread, it, it's not as if um, it's not as if the germ still isn't out there. It's just that we're not transmitting it around the population and building up that natural immunity, uh, which some people call derisively herd immunity. Uh, and it shouldn't be a derisive term. That's that's you know, natural epidemiology. And, and that's, that's basically how a population, uh, you know, Darwinism, if you will, that's how a population uh, goes forward into the future, uh, able to defeat, you know, various vectors that are going to take out a population. And, you know, it's kind of like what they say about washing your hands too much. If you use those hand cleaners too much, and if you're so antiseptic and you're your house is ultra hermetically sealed and you never kiss uh, your relatives and you never, you always wipe down before you shake and after you shake hands. And basically if you try to live germ free, you make yourself very susceptible to getting sick. Yeah. There's an, so, there's, there's an interesting, boy, that brings up all sorts of fun stuff to talk about because we have this. That's right. Um, like we are, there's this, uh, there's an argument that is, con that is, uh, commonly called like the, the universe is finely tuned for human existence. And it's an argument in favor of a creator, but I'm not going to go there with it. But it does say, I, I will say this though, is that whether you believe in Darwinism, whether you believe in a creator, whether you believe in some combination of both of those things, the human body is such an amazing, amazing piece of machinery, a biological piece of machinery, the ability of the human body to recover and heal itself and respond and react to outside sources and deal with problems that it encounters is really nothing short of a scientific miracle. And it's like, it goes even so far as this to say like, now they're, they're unlocking uh, uh, some of the uh, DNA 
how should I say, some of the genetic responses that we have to external sources, they are now, they're, they're now starting to learn that our bodies have certain genetic codes within us that respond in a certain way to external stimulus that has never yet been seen on the planet. So it's like we're going to be exposed to something on the outside. We already have baked it, baked into our genetic DNA the ability to deal with that. Like there's a code that hits run or enter and it goes and, and we can right. deal with it. Right. And uh, it, it, you, you have to ask how much of this, it's like a science fiction movie, you know, it's like Star Trek. How much tinkering should humans do with, with that process? And, and who are we to think that we're smarter than the human body to deal with something like this. And that's not to say at the same time that we can help it out. And, you know, I'm not a, a, a strict anti-vaccine type of guy, but I'm also not the guy who takes antibiotics every time I get a cold. I always, I don't do that. I let myself fight it because I figure, well, one, it's a pain in the backside to go to the doctor. And two, I, I, I don't, I think my body's equipped to handle it. And, and uh, that has gotten me, and I think you at times, Norm, in <laughs> some medical issues before, but Nine times out of ten, yeah. I, I think that's probably true. And you know, the, this notion that we can control this virus better than the human response to it, um, and, and I get it. There's a delicate balance. You don't want to say we're going if if the human response isn't good enough, you don't just let everybody die. But uh, we never no. even gave it a chance. Right. Yeah, but but well, what, we, what if it's manufactured that, genetically though, and it's not a natural born thing though? Then then you get into that. So right. man created it. Yeah. And, what is our ability to deal with it? Well, uh, we we know we can. We've we've yeah. Yeah. We, we've created this this uh, culture, this safety culture, I call it, um, and we, and and also this um, cleanliness culture. You know where, you know everybody thoroughly scrub. I'm, listen, I'm all in favor of hygiene, obviously, <laughs> but you know uh, you, you could talk to skin doctors. You could talk to a lot of uh, a lot of people that study um, other societies. And Americans are absolutely overcleaned. Yeah, we're nuts. I mean, we're nuts. I mean, we we, we over soap everything. We spray everything, and it's it's doing us not a lot of favors. And let me my um, my memory is that back in the forties and fifties, this just goes to show you how how things have evolved. That moms, you know, there'd be whole neighborhoods going up with basically the same post-World War II uh, kind of uh, GI family, uh, you know, babyhoods. You know, all, all the guys getting out of the, out of the war, coming off of uh, some kind of obligation during the war and, uh, you know, building a house and, you know, that whole suburban uh, uh, kind of you know, paradise that we created, so to speak. And the moms would get their newborn babies together and basically have them exchange germs at little germ parties. And it was intentional. Yeah. I to, mean, the idea was yeah. to get those babies resistant to common germs. Now, they didn't want them to get polio, for God's sakes, or anything like that. But I'm talking about, uh, you know, just, just regular run-of-the-mill resistance uh, in, you know, in their white blood count for, you know, just babies having to be exposed to, you know, all of the pathogens out there in the real world that, that they would normally encounter. And the moms used to just get it over with. Let's have a little baby party 
they all lick each other and drool on each other, whatever babies do. Uh, you can't imagine anything like that now. Yeah, modern yeah. modern day, though, today, it's called daycare. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah, it's school and daycare. All, yeah, you we, 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 Angie and I had this conversation when, we, before, when uh, Madeline was born, whether, okay, do we want— we just had misgivings about do we want to take Madeline to daycare? It really did fit, uh, you know, a two income family, but it's like, uh, will she be traumatized because, you know, the, you know, all the things that go in your head with your firstborn, secondborn, yeah, he's going to go. Um, but one thing it did turn us thinking about is like your kid will be healthier walking into kindergarten because they're, they're going to be sick a lot during daycare, mm-hmm. but they're going to get it out of their system during those years. And when kindergarten comes around, they're going to be one of the healthiest kids there, and they're, and that's fact. Well, and there's a there's a metaphorical analogy here that can be had or discussed, and you know it's it is true that uh, Adolf Hitler was one of the he was a a ridiculous germaphobe. I mean, he was he was one of these guys that was just deathly afraid of germs and and wanted everything clean, and you know the psychology behind that. They you know there's been uh, it, it, like he wanted the the, the race of the Aryans cleaned of all contamination. He wanted all the germs out of the society. He wanted all of that sort of cleansed. And he used that as a metaphor to do what he was doing and justify what he was doing. And in it's, uh, I'm not saying that we're heading in, well, maybe I, I don't know where we're heading, but I would say this is that it's really easy if you're the government to uh, exercise authoritarian uh, tendencies for the safety of the people to say, I'm protecting the people. And I heard Biden say this, my job is to protect the American people. And I'm thinking to myself, well, not like this. You know, my job is to, my yeah. job is to, your job is to protect our freedom, uh, not our well-being necessarily, and, unless it's from an attack of outsiders. Um, and, you know, this is, uh, it reminds me of an old C.S. Lewis quote that it says, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victim may be the most oppressive. Um, and he goes on to reason that, you know those who are doing it out of uh, out of sure out of sheer ill will. They just want to uh, torture you. Well, they're not going to. They're going to eventually go away. You know they're going to do it intermittently or or whatever. But you know if the government is involved exercising tyranny for your own safety, it has no end. It is constant. It is um, it is relentless, and it never it never ceases. And then it breeds on itself with the uh, I guess the. Uh, the high of its own power that they're getting from it. And uh, it has no, it doesn't have a stop point. And I think, I think the other side of that is that, uh, that we should talk about is our willingness to go along with it because you sort of figure, well, they're not, they got my best interest in mind. And I've heard people say that, well, I just trust that the government's got my best interest and uh, they're going to do what's right for me. And, you know, oh boy, and that, that may be true. It may not be true, but the point is you won't know the difference. And if they don't, oh or even if they think they do and it's mistaken, that's a problem. And uh, I always asked um, people who say that to me, I was like, okay, yeah, when's your appointment? And they'd be like, what are you talking about? No, your appointment with the governor. When's your appointment with the, with the wine? When's he coming over to your house to get to know you, to know what your best interests are? Because otherwise, how in the heck could he possibly know what my best interests are? Because I don't even know the man. He doesn't know what I do day in and day out. He doesn't know my job. He doesn't know my business, doesn't know my financial situation, my kid's psychological health. Uh, their physical health. He know he has no idea what my best interests are, and shame on him for thinking he right. does. Uh, and it is a right. path. It it is an unwitting path to tyranny, I think. And that's what C.S. Lewis was saying about it. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing to me that the the hipsters, the um, intellectual, you know, intelligentsia, the 
college professorships, uh, the protesters, major media, all of these uh, traditionally liberal, uh, traditionally individualistic, iconoclastic sorts of institutions and groups of people just not long ago. And by long ago, I'm talking, you know, in the blink of an eye in terms of history, just blink your eyes 50 years ago uh, during the Vietnam wind down. And, you know, that was happening 50 years ago. None of those uh, that I just mentioned trusted the government. The government was the problem. The government was who you didn't trust. And they had they had all kinds of fairly reasonable um, sorts of theories and, and uh, reasonable uh, uh, questions that they were asking about, you know, how could the government, for example, get us into Vietnam and keep us there uh, without either going for a victory or or setting what the goal was short of victory getting to that goal and then getting out kind of like afghanistan and um and so people were just you know you can't trust the government for anything the what their their statements their statistics nothing that they issue from the white house would you take in a spoon feed manner and yet those same groups of people that same list that i gave which are the liberals are now completely besodden with the government. I mean, they're, they, they view the government as the most trusted thing uh, in our society rather than their own individual desires, their own individual research, their own individual choices. Uh, they, they've gone from, they've gone from, hey, man, I want to be free to, hey, man, I want to be as free as the government uh, thinks it's good for me to be free. Well, even worse, I've heard I've heard Schwarzenegger said it, F your freedom, you know, screw your freedom. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah. no, wow, no, uh, wow. like, yeah. no, you know, it's like you, you right. don't get to say that, um, that, that. Well, only 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 an elite would say that because he doesn't really mean screw his own freedom, right? right? Well, yeah, right. He, he means that's what. Yeah, he means screw our freedom. Yeah, the because, next day he's walking know, out of a coffee shop with his buddies, right? So that's the yeah. Well, or getting on his private jet or doing whatever Arnie wants to do. He's got, you know, he's got so much money. He's you know backstroking through it. Those kinds of people are all too happy. To, to restrain the rest of us and then live their own uh, lifestyles. And, you know, the, the, the most, the most uh, incredible hypocrite of that would be the Obamas, you know, who tell us that, uh, you know, the, the ocean is going to rise and in the next couple of decades, and then they go buy a, I don't know, what if, whatever it was, $24 million property on Martha's Vineyard on the beach at sea level. Well, so, you know, I mean, it's 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 clear they don't believe their own, you know, propaganda. What they what they want is to use fear uh, to drive us to drive policy 
uh, and make the proletariat um, pay for everything. Well, and you know this this has come up a lot, I guess, in the context. A lot of a lot of stuff is getting exposed in this day and age. For those who are willing to open their eyes and look at it, when you see Gavin Newsom going to this laundry restaurant, whatever that was in California, with to have his yeah. thirty thousand dollar meal, when you see French laundry, when you, yeah. yeah, when you see these, when you see those screaming the loudest about the need for res- governmental enforced restrictions, they themselves are outdoing. Uh, living a free life without those restrictions, um, it really is telling you something. And and then when the Obamas, for instance, and I, I, I we're, I'm just bringing this up. You, you mentioned the Obamas, it made me think of this. And I don't I don't want to make it an Obama bashing session, but it, it like the a perfect example is his birthday party that happened on Martha's Vineyard when he flew in all those people at uh, during the pandemic, and uh, and there was a quote, yeah, and they they basically said, well. You know, we are. I think this might have been their words. We're sophisticated enough uh, to know how to to do this safely, as if the rest of us aren't. And there is nothing yeah. that that irks my soul more than 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 elitist snobbery like that. I absolutely hate it. Um, I happen to right. think that the salt of the earth folks, the richest folks, everybody in between. We all have capabilities and something to offer. And, and anybody who says that the amount of money you make reflects your intelligence or your station in life reflects your intelligence uh, or ability to uh, respond and react and, and be functional in this world and, and be safe in this situation, well, they're just flat out – it's just uh, – it, 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 they're, they're wrong. They're just flat out wrong. And yeah. uh, it, they can't even look in the mirror and realize it. Yeah, I was going to say the smartest ones that leave this world with nothing are probably the smartest ones because you can't take it with you anyway. You can't take it with you anyway. <laughs> you might as well use it all up while you're uh-huh. here. <laughs> and, and, you know, we learned long ago. I mean, the Greeks figured this out. It's like the stuff doesn't make you happy. The stuff doesn't make give you a fulfilled, satisfied life. Often stuff comes as a result of living a fulfilled, satisfied life, but it's not the reverse. And, you know, how many studies are there out there of those who won the lottery who were miserable and depressed uh, they're still miserable and depressed, and they're millionaires. Hmm. Um, you see rich people committing suicide at alarming rates. You see uh, kids from wealthy households committing suicide at alarming rates. You know, there's not a satisfied existence out there. And uh, it's it's in the one vein, these people will scream about the woes and, and uh, evils of money. Um, and then in the other, they're, they're saying that, we, others should give people more money to make them happy or make them uh, or to equalize something that has to do with money. And, you know, I, I think what about there's people who just don't care about money. And I've known plenty of them. You know, they don't care. Uh, they uh, I had a client one time, Norm, huh? and he had the ability, very smart, educated man, uh, was a Christian and just decided that he was going to I don't even know if it was an experiment as much as a, uh, a, a I guess, a leap of faith. But he decided that. um he was going to live a, a impoverished lifestyle. He's like, he didn't care about, he just lived a life not caring about money. Uh, he bought the cheapest place he could find in a, in the, it was a terrible neighborhood in town, uh, took in those who uh, ended up actually hurting him, uh, which is why he was in my office at one point, um, but was perfectly content. It was just like, look, my wife and I, we decided that we're not going to worry about wealth and prosperity as defined by our society. We're going to live a different way. And we've been, I asked him, I said, how's that, how's that work? And he goes, you know what? Uh, It'd be nice to have the big TV. It'd be nice to have the big wealthy, but we've just, we don't want it. Like we've learned not to even want it. And uh, it was a really interesting conversation. I I spoke more to him about that, that stuff than I did his case, but um, it was sort of a fascinating, uh, I guess, exploration 
of what's important and what's not. And uh, it's, yeah. to say that you're going to give money to somebody and fix their problems and make them happy uh, is lunacy. And to think well, that— I think uh, the, the, the silver lining, you know, because we all need a good laugh these days, right? I mean, th- this has been such a grim past couple of years. Uh, and, you know, whether it's the election or COVID or just, you know, the police uh, issues where they, you know, the police are the, you know, they're all racist uh, one day and then the next day, you know, because uh, uh, some some uh, protesters uh, kicked in windows and doors at the Capitol, then the police are the heroes. I mean, they can't get their they can't get their narrative straight, you know, about the police. You know, well, gee whiz, are they the vanguards of society or are they the scum of the earth? But at any rate, there's just way too much stress, too much, you know, hate, too much uh, contention. And what I like, the trend that I have seen, and I think we're turning the corner because so much has been exposed, is that some of the liberal comics, uh, comedians always lead the way, it seems to me, uh, because they start making fun of things that they see as, as, as obvious hypocrisy. So you had Seth Rogen, for example, at the Academy Awards, noting that uh, you didn't have to wear a mask if it was in L.A., if it was an outdoor event. So they had the Academy Awards in basically a hermetically sealed, and that's what he called it, a hermetically sealed tent. And it, it wasn't open air in any way. And, of course, like you said, Steve, all of the servant class, well, they're all masked up. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, uh, Leo DiCaprio and, you know, the, the, the beautiful people, they're, they're all maskless. And it's, and it's like we, we're creating a two-tier system, but the, um, the, uh, and people are accepting it for some oddball reason. But what's great is that the comedians are picking up on it. And Seth Rogen said that right at the event in real time. He did, Pointing yeah. out the hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. I'm no Seth Rogen fan. Um, but um, you're seeing that with Bill Maher. Uh, guys, the Saturday Night Live uh, cast members, uh, Jim Brewer, uh, Norm McDonald, which who just passed away last week. What a shame, by uh, the way. Some, yeah, I mean, some people are just uh, Joe Piscopo. Some people are just um, starting to find their firmament and deciding, you know what? Um, like even Seinfeld said, I can't even play on college campuses anymore because the kids there are so grim. You can't, you can't tell, I mean, you can't tell a gay joke. You can't tell a, a Jew joke. You can't tell a Catholic joke. You, you can't, t- you can't, you can't talk real diversity and, and about the funny things and the funny stereotypes because everybody is waiting to be offended. Everybody is so hyper I think falsely sensitive. It's like they they want to find something to be offended by so that they can be a victim because we celebrate victimhood. And uh, you know, the comedians are starting to pick up on all this and, and the liberal ones are the ones that I have the most faith will will it'll dawn on them that Colbert and Kimmel are just not funny anymore. 
No, they're I mean, not at all. Who yeah. want, no, who wants to turn on what used to be a fun one-hour show as you kind of doze off to sleep? Now it's just, compl- uh, well, it has been for, you know, eight years or so. Uh, it, it's just either ass-kissing of, of liberals or it's just the, the dirtiest, meanest form of, uh, of uh, put-downs of the opposition. In, in a very uncivil way, you know, the thing that uh, Colbert, for example, for example, called uh, Trump, which I will not, I can't even say it, but it, it used the word holster. And, uh, you know, that kind of a thing went out on the airwaves. And, uh, you know, people, I think, are, are switching gears. So you got Greg Gutfeld now, who's number one late night TV. Uh, because he is actually funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and the, and, you know, <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing about this, it's a good point. I've actually had Jason Banks, the, you know, comedians on South High and his crew. They've been in, obviously, recorded in our Perfect. studio with Jared. And, and I had this on the show. I had uh, several of them on the show and had this conversation about it. And it's, uh, Perfect. It, I had this, yeah. I have this hypothesis that stand up comedy is, is really like the, like the base level of freedom of speech. I mean, those guys, uh, are have to be fearless. They have to say whatever they want because what they're really doing is is making comedy out of everyday observations. You know, they, they take things that they see and they see things in a very artistic, different way, uh, and they make comedy from it. And the best comics in history, and I'm forgetting, I'm drawing a blank on a guy who was the old uh, satirist from the 70s and 80s. Daddy can't. What was his name? Um, oh, uh, 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 I'm drawing a total Car- blank. Um, George. Um- Carlin, George Carlin. George Carlin, yeah. He was he was the, the pinnacle of that. Yeah, Richard Pryor, George yeah, Carlin. Rich Klein. The, these guys. Rich Klein was another one. Yeah, yep. yeah. These guys took, they pushed the envelope of what was acceptable yeah. and did it in a way that uh, that really promoted freedom. You know, Carlin's, Carlin's bit on bits on government and and how how absurd and hip, hippocratic everything is or the hypocrisy of right. everything uh he was very very in tune with that and i was talking to banks about this jason banks and you know they have a very they all felt a very uh, strong uh resistance or pressure not to go to certain places in their comic routines and then at some point he just basically said, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I got to do, I just got to go. And, you know, there was an example where he was, um, he's got different characters. One of them's blind and someone's giving him grief for that. And, you know, it, and it wasn't that he was making fun of blind people. It was just, it was a funny, it was a funny bit. Right. And, and he, uh, he just, he just is doing it. And I think the stand up comics are the ones that will shatter wokeism because they eventually have to earn a living by making people laugh and they're artists and it can't be contained. And when you, like you said, when you see Colbert and these guys who are uh, on the, on their night shows crying about some uh, political mess that they're observing, uh, it's not funny. And, and I don't want to see, I, I don't care. You know, it's like, I, I don't care what their opinion is on that stuff. I want to laugh. And if they want to make fun of me, I'll be there laughing with them. And if they're making fun of right. people I, I don't like, I don't care if they do like, I, it, you know, it's funny. And Saturday Night Live used to go after everybody. Everybody. They didn't right. care what. I mean, mm-hmm. they made fun of everybody, and Norm Macdonald was the uh, was the was the best at it. But it uh, it just. I think that is going to be our savior if there is one. And when they start, yeah. when, when the government crams down on that, when the government says comics can't 
speak freely. That's when we really have to worry. And that will be the, uh, that, that's the, that's the death gasp, I think at that point, because they're the ones right. that, they're the ones that, that, that exercise the most freedom of speech and, uh, they can make fun of all the nonsense and, and get us to look at it in a different way. Carlin made you laugh and made you think. And yeah, what, who did, who did Al Qaeda target in France? It was Charlie Hebdo, the, 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 uh, you know, the, 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 the liberal magazine with all the cartoons and the, you know, fearless, uh, you know, if they needed to say something about radical Islam and put it in a cartoon and make fun of something, you know, like they do with the Pope or they do with Christians all the time. Right. Yep. But, you know, but no, they blew up their offices, killed a bunch of their people. And, uh, yeah, comic, you know, comedy is risky. It is risky. Uh, I mean, and it's, and, and, and it, yeah, and, and it's one of the things uh, you can't. You know, uh, the, the 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 president of Turkey uh, has has jailed comedians and reporters. You're not allowed to poke fun at him, uh, Erdogan. That's like uh, Napoleon stuff, man. I mean, that that's like yeah. Hitler and Napoleon stuff. And China's doing that. They're they're starting to control. The uh, the the um, entertainment industry, like they they're they're not allowed to portray guys as being weak and effeminate um, on on their in the yeah. media industry, and it just is um, it's scary stuff. When the government starts controlling the artistic expression of its citizens, uh, you know you're in a really really bad spot. And and again, they're going to do yeah. it under the guise of uh, fairness or equity or whatever it is. And really, what they're doing is they're taking away something from everybody that you don't realize you you lost it until it's gone. And that's what I think that's what a lot of people are worried about. And whether you're liberal, whether you're yeah, conservative, think, uh, or whatever the deal Jay, is, I don't think Jason's going to get a booking in in Kabul, do you? No, <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> probably not. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> well, look, we got a meeting coming into the studio. Somebody, uh, yet another professional wants to come in and start a podcast so we got to wrap this up but uh, uh norm it's great to okay. talk to you by phone we'll just give the usual wrap-up message this is uh lawyer talk off the record on the air we've been coming at you on wednesdays here tuning in with the blitz norm sitting in brett from uh, circle 270 media sitting in jared you know we're praying for you uh we uh we it's a slow recovery but a uh at least it's happening the recovery is there step by step bit by bit uh, Shorty, we're praying for you too because, uh, boy, the, the weight on your shoulders has got to be immense. And uh, we're all uh, love you, Shorty. Yep, we're all rooting for you. Yep. Uh, and so many people reaching out. It makes you realize how many people Jared had uh, impacted in his life of all sorts. Right, that you can just watch the Facebook feed and, and the calls and and the messages that uh, that uh, people are sending his way. So thanks to everybody on that. Uh, Lawyer talk. You know, if you got your own question, we take questions. I started doing Norm a Q and A series. Uh, I call it Lawyer Talk Q&A, where I'm dropping, uh, I'm just coming in the morning answering questions that people have sent me at LawyerTalkPodcast.com, answering questions that I receive upstairs at the law firm at OhioLegalDefense.com. And I'm giving people a way just to get their questions answered without, if you don't want to devote an hour to this um, uh, highly intellectual uh, stimulating conversation that we've just had to hear the questions answered, no big deal. I'm starting to do it on the Q&A, and we're going to keep doing that. So you got a question, uh, shoot it my way, and I'll answer it. 
uh, and then you can just tune in and listen. It, it'll be just our secret that it's yours. I don't tell, I don't give out names. So <laughs> if you know it's yours and you, you, you know you're special. But, but uh, this would be you. a good time to put the PayPal connection in uh, where they could donate, right? Oh, and, yeah. You know, yeah, because uh, if they really want to keep it quiet. <laughs> and, and we do have a yeah. Patreon page. So those of you who are so inclined, pull out your credit card. Go to uh, Channel 511. Uh, you can scroll down. You can uh, you can see where there's a Patreon subscription. You can do that at LawyerTalkPodcast.com. Plenty of ways to pay. And we're, we're happy to accept the donations because why? It sounds awesome because we spend a lot of money to make it sound awesome. We, we devote a lot of time to make it sound awesome. Freddie B is doing his part to make it sound awesome. And it's starting to look awesome, too. We, we've done some live experimenting with uh, live streaming, and that's getting uh, pretty much tuned in and ready to rock and roll. Norm, you're piped in from afar at the hospital, and you know that's working out pretty well. So lots of opportunity here for your business if you want your own uh, uh, sort of entertainment-type podcast. Uh, anything you want to do in a studio, whether it's audio, whether it's video, whether it's some combination of both, maybe uh, website uh, type promotionals. Uh, we got you covered here and, um, and, uh, just give us a shout channel or just look us up, shoot us an email at channel 511.com. Uh, and as always upstairs, 614-224-6142. So until next Wednesday, if not before on the Q and a session, this is lawyer talk off the record on the air, at least until now. <laughs>